Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am up early to talk to a pretty amazing guy that I am very happy to have on the show. Whether you know his work in graphics or as an author or as a musician, a composer, and the current keyboard player for your Rye Heap, this man is quite amazing. I'm anxious to get into some questions and find out more. Phil Lanzen. Phil, how are you this morning or this afternoon for you? Oh, it's afternoon. I've just had my lunch. I'm feeling good. And um, it's a little cloudy out there. Unfortunately, you can't see the sea because the sea is actually through my window here. Oh. But you can imagine it. <laughs> I see that your keyboard is at the window so that you can enjoy the view while you create. Of course. Oh, that's wonderful. That's perfect. That's the way to be. And I can see the weather coming from Scandinavia and coming and hitting my window. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is living the dream, right? I mean, to have a beautiful view of the water to compose to. Uh, I'm much more of a water person than a forest person. Mm. Well, actually, I, I'm uh, I'm both because I'm I'm a Londoner, so I've lived in London all my life up until recent recent decades, and we we only really left London because the pollution is getting pretty bad there, and like any big city. But then we moved to the sea, which I absolutely adore. But it doesn't stop the love for the city. I go crazy for, you know, I need my London fix. Yeah, I, I'm very torn myself because I live in Las Vegas. Obviously, the pollution here from, you know, everything we've got is pretty heavy. Uh, some yeah. hotels are switching over to solar, which is great. But I, I want to be off in the country a way where I can just not worry about anything. But at the same point, I don't want to be that far from the city either. Mm, mm. Well, I get I get what you're saying. It is it, it's a it's a happy medium, really, because it, it most people are generally city people or country coast people. Mm. Normally, they're they're one or the other. But but I'm right right in the middle. I I, I kind of need both. Yeah, I can understand that. I I find you really interesting, and I feel like I can identify you in the way of having so many multiple creative outlets. Like there's just so much that you want to accomplish. Uh, in, in the time that we have here, do you find it difficult to to have so many outlets that you, like, I want to work on this, but I also want to do this, and I also want to write a song? It is, it is you're absolutely right. It, it's a little bit, it can be a little bit of a, what's the word for it, an impediment, because, <clears throat> I mean, I have to have a break and, and I have to go outside, I'll ride my bike, I'll just go down to see my partner's shop. She works only one mile from the house. And, and, it gives me a break. But yes, you do come home and you do sit down at the piano and you start doing work and you think, oh, I should be doing something else. But you have to just cut. You have to do this border thing in your brain and say, no, it's this or no, it's that. Because they do intermingle and interbreed. Uh, you know, Is it a song or is it a piece of art or is it a story? <sighs> <laughs> and yes, sometimes they can affect each other, which is a good thing because, you know, one one can move into the other area briefly. If it works, you can tell if it's going to work or not. Sure. And so you just have to be aware all the time of what, where you're going, what, where's your, go your goal. Yeah, I find that if, if I'm trying to write a song and for some reason it's just not working in that moment, I can just jump on and do a podcast or I can start working on an idea for a book or something. And it's great in that way, but at the same point, it's hard sometimes to just be in that moment and focus on the one thing because you're also thinking about, okay, when I'm done with this, I want to get started on that. <laughs> well, that's the problem with us guys. I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> I, I think it's a good problem to have. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it is. It is, and also, um, I think it's nice to 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 build something, whether it be a song, a story, or a picture. It's nice to build something because that thing is going to probably be around long after the likes of you and I are not around anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think it also gives you a direction in which to make the thing you're doing really worthwhile. Yeah. I think if you give it everything, then then that's the best you can do. And, and that, I think, is a gift in itself. And I have to say, I, I've not seen anything, and I can say this honestly, your eye heat biases aside, I have not seen anything or heard anything from you that I haven't been wowed by. You know, whether it's the the way that you feel music, whether it's the the way that you show on a piece of graphic art, what you've come up with. Uh, every time I see a new painting posted on Instagram, I just smile because I see a passion in it. And I don't know what yeah. it is. There, there's people that I can look at their art and I can just say, yeah, I mean, it's quality, but it doesn't make me smile. You know, but there's something about your creativity that I really enjoy. I think that's true of, of um, a lot of what I mean. Recently, I was doing the art galleries in London. I hadn't done for a long time. And like you say, I went around and I, I went into all the little galleries, the big galleries, the major galleries and all those things. And it is true. A, a, a person will feel something for a piece of art sometimes instantly. And it's bang. And, and oh, God, I've got to watch and I've got to look close at this and really closely. Or you just walk past it. Mm-hmm. And it's just uh, it's something it's something in the heart that gets grabbed. And there's something in the passion of, of the picture that just grabs you and you've got no choice but to go with it. Yeah, there's just something about um, seeing people's passion or hearing it that if you're drawn to it, you can't help but to want to really dig in. That's right. You know, that's one of the reasons I started the Uriah Heap, the Magicians podcast, because there's so much great music that your band has created and you've been in the band over 30 years. So well over half of the time the band's existed. And mm. there's so many great songs. It's not just about Easy Living or The Wizard. They're, like every song I've dug into, even the few that I've been like, not a great song for me, but I found great things in those songs. Mm. You know, mm. there's so many layers. Was it was it intimidating or or anything when you've thought about auditioning for Uriah Heep? I mean, no, that's, that's a pretty all. big no. shoes to fill. No, not at all. Um, what, what had happened was, of course, I'd come from another band, Grand Prix, and I was working with a band, well, you know, Sweet, the famous Sweet, and we'd written some songs, me and Andy and Paul, the singer, and I was in the songwriting mode, and I knew about Uriah Heep, um, what was going on, and the introduction came along, and I thought, well, this is great, and I never, it wasn't, there wasn't one moment's thought about anything else but getting involved in the music, the old, cat, you know, the old catalogue, obviously, and and seeing where Uriah Heap as a band sat in the rock world as a whole, and and thinking, well, this is a great opportunity. This is this is wonderful news. There's no intimidation here. There's no shoes to fill. It's just a, a job that I would love to be able to do. Uh, and uh, regard, regarding performance and songwriting, it, things just clicked right from the off. And, you know, I brought my writing skills into the team and between myself and Mick, we had we just formed such a good writing partnership and things just seemed to gel very well. It, there was no sort of forcing anything. Mm-hmm. It was 
a kind of a natural move, which is when things happen like that, you know, it's for the best. Oh, absolutely! And it, got the best in you. So really, that that sums that one up, really. And it's it's very apparent in the music that you and Mick hit it off right from the beginning, because even the first album that you were on, it felt very natural, you know. And you've mm. got basically a, a whole new band, or most of a whole new band. And uh, I thought it went in a great direction right from the beginning. And obviously, that's a big change in the sound that led you guys to where you are now. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, the first songs were, were um, the first songs we came up with were the trial period of, you know, will this work? I mean, we knew it would work because there was something in the songs, whether it be a lyric I'd come up with or whether it was a melody I'd come up with or whether it was a chord sequence that we, we really were crazy about. You know, it's just, it, things just went together like that. Mm-hmm. And and just it was it was a great it was a great team working you know working together. Yeah, it, it was very cohesive, you know. And and adding a new singer and a keyboard player and, and basically new primary writer to the band, uh, which you are to this day. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where people who are fans of the band will go, I don't know, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? You could take oh, the yeah, greatest yeah, musicians that, and put them together. No, that that that's a fact. I mean. Um, the early days, well, there, there was the question of, well, you know, hang on, this isn't really heap anymore. You know, of course we had all that. It's only natural because <clears throat> when when your favourite band changes its personnel, uh, you know, a, a fan will obviously be disturbed by that because they delivered the thing that they loved the most. And it's so important. I mean, for me, with bands that I love or anyone at all, as soon as something changes in the format, you go, oh, wait a minute, well, it's not the same anymore. Well, of course it's not the same anymore. <laughs> it can't ever be the same. So what you do is you look at the the track listing and, and, and the history of a band and, and, you know, you look very closely at it and see what was the dynamic features of these things. Now, you don't go in to copy that. You go in to look at what worked the best and to see what you can bring to the table that fits into that but doesn't go against or copies but fits alongside and so you work that way and that's how you build each album that we've done really on that format but there's also what you learn during the making of that album and what you learn during that tour that you then bring to the next album but it feels like people don't want bands to grow and progress they just want you to freeze in that moment that they love the most and just keep being in that moment but more of it that's correct absolutely correct now that that doesn't luckily it doesn't apply to a hundred percent of the audiences, sure. but it does apply to a fair size section of it, and to a, uh, to a large extent, you've got to understand it, because if you or I or anyone takes their favourite band from when they were younger, even from their teenage years, <clears throat> those songs mean, as we all know, they mean so much. I mean, they 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 cut to the passionate side of you, and and you you can't ever forget those moments you shared with somebody like your girlfriend or whatever at the time or family thing. And it's stuck there for, and, until you, you leave the planet. Right. Honestly, that, that's how it works. So it's understandable that, that people will say it's not the same anymore because it isn't. Sure. And that's true. Uh, music is very associative with memories, you know, just like the weather is when the weather feels a certain oh. way, you remember certain moments of your life. Mm. It's nostalgia, you see, because nostalgic well, the word nostalgia itself uh, opens up an entire entire sort of uh, discussion because 
most of our lives are built on nostalgia regarding everything, not just music, but but vision, uh, relationships, uh, family things, school days, uh, holidays, uh, you name it, food, anything at all. It, it, nostalgia comes in somewhere. Oh, I remember why I did that. Oh, well, don't you remember when we did that? Oh, it was amazing, you know. So life is kind of built alongside nostalgic events in a way. So so when something new comes along and, and, and challenges the nostalgic feeling, that's where the problem comes, where people go, oh, no, no, it's not the old, it's not the old style. Right. Well, you go to a restaurant that you frequent, and a lot of times you don't really experiment by getting different things on the menu. You get those yeah, things that you yeah, know are fine. going to be a hit. You yeah. know? Uh, I'm very curious about your your Hammond sound because it's very solid. And and I just recorded a podcast with Dave White last night, and we were talking about it, that your Hammond sound is not Ken Hensley's sound. It's not John Lord's sound. It's Phil Lanzon's sound. How yeah, did you, that's... how did you, did you create that for Heap or did you have that prior? Well, that was, no, that, that Hammond sound, the Hammond sound was up until the album. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. No, what would it be? Uh up to the late 90s, it was the Hammond sound. After that, um, it was, I don't think we used it in 2000. Uh, no, a few, a few albums back, we, we went over to the, the Nord, mm. the Nord uh, synth, which is a, an organ, as everyone uses them now. Um, that's, that's the only change there's really been. And apart from that, I've either hire the Hammond or, you know, the, the actual the actual tone of a of a B three and the tone of a Nord are different, obviously, because the Hammond's being driven by real valves. Right. And it's a real instrument. Um whereas the Nord is not. It's a it's a it's a synthetic instrument, as we all know. So you, you won't have the identical same sound. So what what I've been what I've driven for literally is the overdrive is the overdrive uh, power that as every rock band with an organ player in it will know to compete with guitar. Yeah, and so uh, that is the sound that we have or have had for some decades. It has been uh, been the overdrive overdriven sound that a Hammond does. It's so it's it's, um, it's down to the individual. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who. Uh, you know, uh, who point fingers and say, oh, he's not playing a Hammond, no. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. That's my attitude with so much of those kind of arguments, you know, which song is better than which other song? And I, I don't get what's behind that. To me, enjoy what you enjoy. If you hear something, you don't like it, maybe give it a chance down the road when your tastes change a little bit. Maybe the moment you heard it in just wasn't the right moment. Uh, yeah. I, I guess I'm just a little more open-minded to things like that. The The goal is to make a great-sounding song. Who cares how you got there? Yes, I know. The, the, this is the important thing. I mean, I'm a, I myself, am a, I'm a song person. I don't actually build things from a sound point of view. I go for the top, which is the song. Does the song work? Has it got? Does it move you as a song? The, 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 the melody, the style of its movement, the, the, the lyrics, you know, if it moves you that way, then you can worry about how it's going to sound underneath. Mm -hmm. You know, some people come from the sound point only, which is good because you want a good sound. Um, but to concentrate primarily on sound and not so much on the song, I think is a bit of a mistake because you lose 
you can lose the song by concentrating too much on the sound. I highly agree with that. Great if you're in an instrumental situation where you only do instrumentals, you can do what you like with that. But when it's when you're crafting a song, it's a different thing altogether. Well, yeah, you have to leave open room for the singer to come through and shine because they're telling the yeah. story you're supposed to know and the music is right. supposed to back it. Uh, but in that crafting songs, do you find like I do where we almost have too many sounds available to us and it's it's sometimes hard to narrow down what you want to shape the song? Yes, it is. It can be. I mean, you see, uh, from my point of view, be, being primarily a songwriter, I get the song down first in its bare, bare bones uh, with very little thought about other sounds coming in. Mm-hmm. So if I get the rhythm right, I've got the feel right and the chord structures right and the melody and lyric is sitting good, I know I've got something. Then I know I will take that to somebody else to have a listen and they can start saying, well, you can put this in, you can put, great. I would rather be the songwriter and not the producer. Mm. Yeah. I leave that to the producer. <laughs> well, I was told too as, as an author throw, if, or a, a screenwriter, throw everything you want in there. Someone else mm. is going to edit it. They're going to say, we can't do this. This doesn't work. But yeah. if you don't put it in there, it's never going to be in there. Right. Now, that's one way of thinking with screenplay. However, <laughs> if you put too much into your demo song, the song you've just roughly written sounds great, and you go, mm, uh, stick a guitar solo in there, put a little thing in there, put a saxophone, put a, <laughs> put a backing vocal there, stick a great big organ sound in the middle of that, you can lose your song. Yeah, that's very true. You can overwrite it very easily. I mean, in, in the early days, I, oh, crikey, way back now. I don't hear so much of it now. Um, an acoustic guitar and a bloke singing. If what he's doing works for me, or just to hear that, and, it, and you go, now that's a song, that is what you build. You take that away and you go, right, that song works. Now let's put that song there. Now let's look at the the foundation and build that way. Because if you can hear a song in the briefest amount of instrumentation and it works, you've got something. Well, there is beauty in simplicity. Sure. You know, and, and I find that that's one of the things that, you know, you seem to very be very good at finding a balance of. Now, the song that, that Dave and I went over last night was Mistress of All Time. And that... Uh is such a beautiful song but you were very subtle with doing these little flute solos in there they were very gentle they weren't over the top they weren't uh too far up in front in the mix i give the engineers some credit for that too but Mm. it it was a very simple song that just had a very huge beauty to it and you had an acoustic guitar that sounded huge in the song Mm. uh but very gently played it was just a beautiful song yeah well, it was, it was treated like that mainly because I think because the lyric was so poignant and sort of fa- very fantasy-like mm-hmm. in a way, it kind of lent itself to it had to be that style of a song because the the, 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 the lyric dictated it. I think I feel. Yeah, it's there's a lot of imagery in it, uh, mm. but uh, but it's just a just listening to it and Bernie's voice on that song is just phenomenal. Oh, it sounds great on it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really. Uh, the one thing Dave wanted to be sure that I asked you was he he said that uh, you started a dialogue with him about this that you thought you were playing an XP80 a Roland XP80 oh, on that song. Oh yeah, yes, 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 yes. Now do you know what I think it is? 
I, I it's quite a long time ago. I yeah. think it was a JD eight hundred. Okay, I I did a little digging. The XP80 didn't come out until 96, and uh, this was in 95. So I thought it might have been an XP50, but I was sure it was a Roland because Roland's wind instruments were top of the world. I think it was a JD800, which is sitting under wraps in my attic. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I should dig that out again because that was kind of, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it's a JD800. But that was you used that for the flute too. Yes, I think I would have used it for the uh, the whole song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. Even thinking in today's world, those sounds are still top notch. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good instrument. It's, I need to draw it. I need to get it back out of the attic and plug it in. Yeah, I just gave you another project. <laughs> Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, resurrecting old keyboards. <laughs> so how how do you go about finding the the because you do a lot of fill-ins too. You know, you're playing and then there's those just in-between little things that you come in with that just add a lot of color to the song, just a little lick here and there. Do you just, you know, kind of go through sounds or is there something that you have in your head? Do you have a process for that? Uh I don't know if I do. Maybe I do at the, on the spur of the moment, but I can't think offhand. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's, uh, no, it's hard to say. I think yeah, I think it's just spur of the moment stuff that comes out on the recording itself, you know, or it'll be something that I played that gets mixed down, and then in the mixing by the producer, he's moved something into another position. I, I don't really know. I can't really. Can't really recall much of that. I'll just play the stuff and see what happens. Right. <laughs> I, I always figured that Uriah Heep was a band that whoever the primary writer of the song was would take it to the band and then the band would really add their own flavors to it. Is it from the time that you bring a song in, is it does it still pretty much stay the way that you had it or does it really change in, in the development with the band? Uh, over, over the years, no, it usually would change a bit uh, from the early days, I suppose, We'd probably only just change a little thing like cut out a reintro, or uh, play something a little heavier or a little bit lighter. But generally, the song would the song itself would probably not change at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's only it's only the you know the foundation or the rhythm might change. You know, if it's the wrong speed, if the feel is wrong from the from the drums, it would have to do something about that and change it maybe. <coughs> but overall, the song. Um, remains the same. Yeah. If you pardon, <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, uh, I I have to say I've seen you guys live a couple times. The last two times that you've come to Vegas, uh, first one was at I think it was Boulder Station, and then that was before Living the Dream was released. And then the last time you guys were opening for Judas Priest over at the Hard Rock, which is now the Virgin Hotel. Uh, oh. uh, I I was just amazed by the energy that you guys have on stage the passion that you play the old songs with you know it's like you just wrote them and are playing mm. them for the first time there is a magic of seeing your heap live well you don't forget the thing is um okay when you think about it you know you're sitting at home like i am right now thinking well god those old songs again oh my god but that that's not the point because when you arrive on stage you've got a new audience in front of you Unless you're doing a residency. <laughs> but no, you've got, you've got a new audience in front of you and they're hearing those songs, a lot of the case, either for the first time 
or if not the first time, they love the song so much they'll listen to it forever. Mm. So you know you're going to get that much enjoyment out of the people, and that's what changes everything when you walk on stage. That is the thing, that's the crux of the point completely right there. You walk on stage, you deliver the same song, and those people that are hearing that song are getting so much out of it. There's the magic right there. I think Steve Morse put it really well, too. He said, uh, you know, when they asked him about playing Smoke on the Water, he said, if you had a button that you could press and make 25,000 people scream, wouldn't you press that button? <laughs> well, there you go. You go. <laughs> but I think that's it. I think it's the audience adrenaline that really just drives the band a lot of times, even on those nights where maybe you feel a little bit tired going into the show or, or whatever. I mean, how can you not walk in front of one of those crowds and just get charged? Mm, of course, that's absolutely true every time. Mm -hmm. How it, it must have been tough for you during all this lockdown, not being able to perform, since that's such a major part of your life. Well, uh, exactly, it's been a major part for quite some time now, and it, it was very alien to to. Well, I think the best way to describe it is I've never seen the change of seasons in my own home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, you've endlessly toured for decades. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, I mean, having said that, it, it was a, a unique experience, one I'd never had before. <laughs> and, and of course, it, uh, it gave me plenty of opportunity to paint and to, to carry on writing. So it didn't, it didn't sway me in that, to, that, that respect. In fact, it was a good thing. But touring wise, and, you know, being with a band and playing, you know, it was really weird. Yeah. Well, and, and I think having those multiple creative outlets, this is a case where it was really a plus for you. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely. So I mean, I have, when yeah. you guys went to start writing the new album, uh, I had talked to Mick and he a while ago and he said that you guys had just you and him had just started to work on some new songs. Was it a weird process not being able to be together in the same room or yeah. are you used to distance writing? No, that's really strange indeed, because as soon as we decided to start start the ball rolling and get riding it was like okay well you can't come over here and i can't come over there we're gonna have to do it on our screens mm -hmm. so we just started working on the screen and that's what we did did you we just go with the energy quickly we, uh, yeah in a way not not so directly but certainly it, it did work in the end because um obviously we'd send each other stuff back and forth and he'd send me, I'd go and work on it on the keyboard. I'd send him back what I'd done back to him, and he'd listen to that and try something new, and I'd say, change this and change that. How about this? And then he'd come back to me, and I'd go back to the keyboard. So it was just that. It was like working through, like I'm talking to you. Right. Boom, 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 back and forth, back and forth, and that's how we did everything. It's amazing how we can adapt, though to still mm. do the things that we want to do because so many bands were like, well, we're just going to have to wait because we can't get together. And I get that being together in the same room energy. I understand that because I'm a musician as well and I played in bands, but mm. I love that you guys found a way to make it work. I'm dying to hear this new album because Live in the Dream, I think was one of the best albums for me uh, that the band has done. So to come off of that and then another tour, uh, I, I'm really anxious to hear what you guys have come up with. I can I can only imagine it felt amazing to get back into the studio and record. Yeah, it was amazing and unique. <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, all that time, my God. And then, 
you know, we had an abundance of material. Obviously, we had lots of stuff, and we just went in, decided what we wanted to do, and that's it. So, yes, it, it has been. It's uh, it's being mixed as we speak mm-hmm. over in LA, probably down the road from you. <laughs> oh wow! Oh, I I didn't know you were mixing it over here. No, we aren't. But our producer well, yeah. Jay Rustin is. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's back home. No, in actual fact, he's recording. Uh, Black Star Riders at the moment. Oh yeah, and and he's mixing our album at the same time. So you know he's a pretty busy guy. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping um, it'll be mixed in well probably by the end of November. It should be finished. Oh very but good. But as for releasing, don't ask me. Yeah, you know it's it's really weird with the record companies these days. I've seen albums be recorded and not be released for a year. Absolutely true. You know, so you guys got to do a few shows. Uh, before you started the album and a couple in between, uh, how yeah. did it feel to get, I mean, you were playing some big events too. They were good. They were really good. We had seven festivals. We had five, five in Finland and two in the UK. And they were all very, very good. I mean, excellently well attended the whole thing. So we really enjoyed it. It was just great fun to get back and play. Um, so yeah, unfortunately it was short lived. The summer's over and that's it for this year you know did you guys get to rehearse at all before you went on stage or yeah we had to i mean because you can imagine 18 months without a note <laughs> so we got the better you know we got together for a day and knocked it all into shape and it was fine you know mm-hmm. yeah well from from the pictures and the live clips that russell had posted uh you guys sounded as good as ever it was like there was no break at all no it was it was really good we had every angle covered so really um it was like being back at school, you know. <laughs> what, what seemed strange to me was those were huge festivals. I mean, a lot of people in the crowd. So it's like, okay, we're locked down, uh, social distancing. Now everybody mm-hmm. just get together in one spot. <laughs> that kind of seemed a little uh, weird to me. Well, it was weird. It was totally weird. I, we didn't know what to expect at first. We thought, well, what, what are we going to do with the people? What are they going to do? Stand in, stand in clumps and hit a lump here and a turn here, 12 there and... No, they just came in and it was a normal festival. Yeah, and you guys didn't like have any, like, uh, like a resurgence or anything after that? No, not that I know of, absolutely not. It was like, uh, okay, well, it was all a lie then. Oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad it all worked out. Uh, and I, <laughs> Do you guys have a, a target for going back on tour at this point? Yeah, we do have, um, well, we certainly have a summer full of festivals next year. And we have a long tour of Europe and Scandinavia planned for uh, right through from September through to December. So that's all in place. Uh, but we are looking at the US, but there's no word yet for the early part, uh, for spring. Mm-hmm. Oh, but good. As nothing's materialized yet. So really the first the first work we know about is, is the first festivals in June. Okay. Well, I will just note that we have plenty of venues here in Vegas. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, it, one one more question about Heap, if you don't mind. Uh, you guys have so many albums out now. And of course, adding the new material is always a bit of, you know, you want to integrate some of the new stuff as well. Uh, is it really difficult picking the songs that you're going to play at this point? It is incredibly difficult. <laughs> I mean, um, Obviously, the songs we pick, whenever we pick them, have to gel with the old material. 
And generally, we end up doing a fair few, like three, four, you know, songs from a new album into in, in, to integrate with the old stuff. On one occasion, we did an entire tour with the entire tw- 11 songs in the show, and they all mixed. It was a while back now. Trev wow. was he was with us at the time. Um, and yeah, it was it was every single song fitted between each of the old songs. Wow! Somebody somebody who you might know after they see this uh, interview will know what tour that was, but okay. I can't think of it. <laughs> wow! I'll let you know if I find out. Uh, yeah. that's that's amazing. But it's just there's so much material to plunder from, and you want to well, do things that you know add in a song here and there that you guys like from an old album. And it's cra- it is crazy. We there's so many songs, and uh, I mean you know a lot of people still to this day they always say, well, why didn't you do so and so? Why didn't you do so and so? Yeah, mate. Well, if you got six hours to spend, <laughs> we'll think about it. You know, right. Yeah. And of course, everybody wants to hear you do Salisbury. But if you do that, you're taking up such a chunk of the time that you have on stage to do one song. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, the, everything's possible. You know, in the future, we can, we're can we thinking of looking at different styles of show and, you know, acoustic shows and, and, and shows where there's a break in the middle and you get a two-hour show or a bit more than a two-hour show or something. So we're always talking about doing things like that. But it's, get, it's getting the chance to do it and actually run it up and make a show out of it needs time and an investment of time and money to get that together. Yeah. And then you have to deal with the promoters and finding the other band to gel with. And there's so much oh, that goes yeah. into that. You know the story. You yeah. know the story. Oh yeah. And, and uh, your manager Ace, he has a podcast where he talks about that kind of stuff that I always recommend that people check out. And speaking of things I recommend people check out uh, your album, if you think I'm crazy I was blown away. Uh, well, I've been blown away every time I've heard it. I love the addition of the the choir that you put into that. It was a lovely surprise. Mm. How did you did, did you come up with that concept? Yes, of course. It was always my idea to work with orchestra and choir, and I still have it for my next my next album. I'll be using the same kind of uh, thing because I, I want to concentrate on building a or creating a piece of music which involves more of the orchestra with the choir and the band, or a band. <clears throat> and I, I haven't created it fully yet. I'm working on it as I speak. Um, it's just the kind of thing that, that it's, I, fi- I feel passionate about. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's uh, for me, is, is more important than anything else, to be honest. And, and working with a choir, um, it's, you know, there's nothing better than human voices. Yeah. Yeah, they make a big difference. I mean, I'm a, I'm more of an instrumental artist because I can never find singers that have the time to do the kind of stuff I want to do. And it's mm-hmm. usually experimental anyway, but I've really become more of an instrumental artist. But you're right. There's something amazing about the voice uh, really? that really nothing, uh, no other instrument can really touch it. No, that's right. And when you've got a lot of those voices together, it's even more amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I'm going to have the links to this, your other album, 48 Seconds, and uh, your books and everything in the show notes. I highly suggest everybody follow you on Instagram to get uh, a look at your uh, unbelievable artwork. Uh, (laughs) I also want to talk to you about your your book trilogy. Uh, You know, The Evil with a Thousand Faces, you have two books available now. How is the third one coming along? Because you don't have anything else that you're doing at the moment. No, at the moment I've been I've been brushing up on my fiddle playing because there's a little folk club down the road from here. But apart from that, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Uh, 
the third book, I've just had the front cover okay. Um, it should be out early next year. So that'll be the trilogy complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's as far as that's gone. I'm waiting for the proofreading to come through now. So yeah, it's it's well on the way. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, and well I've got uh, I've got the links to Amazon uh, USA and Amazon UK in the show notes for you guys. And also, if uh, if you like, I also have the all this stuff listed on my website at scotthaskin.com. Click on the Arihi podcast link, and all the links to Phil's works are there as well. Oh, that's great. Don't forget, my Instagram is Phil Lands in one word. Yes. Yep. Got that in there too. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just love that, that we have that in common because I also have a book trilogy that's in editing right now. Uh, it's been uh. in editing for about a decade, but that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also had one more question for you. Uh, I noticed in, in some of the notes to the songs that I, I've been covering, there is a note that some of the pro, uh, synth programming by Steve Piggott. What did Steve do for you? Steve Piggott, my God, that's going back centuries. Um, <laughs> well, I'm in 1995 in the in the show right now. Is it 1995? Uh, yeah, I'm covering Sea. Well, uh, the show is on different light, but I'm recording episodes for um, Sea of Light. Oh, yeah, Steve Piggott. Hang on, Steve Piggott. No, no, the only person who Steve Piggott goes back to early early 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. Was it the um uh what's the album? That was the album. Different World, was it? Yeah, there's there's a couple I think on Different World where he was listed as uh six yes, programmer. That's right. I'm sure Steve Piggott was there on that. Yes, it was him. Mm-hmm. But that's all I can I don't know, it didn't do anything else. The only other thing somebody came in for was Pete Beckett. Mm-hmm. He came in on Sea of Light to do, an, uh, we worked on an orchestral arrangement for Love in Silence. There you go. Uh, I think it was Pete Beckett. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was him. And yeah, that's the only other two people that have been involved with us. But what does synth programming mean? Does that is he programming patches or sounds for you? Yeah. The, the, Steve Piggott did back in the early 90s, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I had, a, had an array of keyboards and I didn't want to have anything to do with them, really. I just wanted to play the organ and piano. Yeah. So I said, well, let, why don't we just get somebody in the, to do the program? Because programming is a waste of time mm-hmm. in the studio. T- studio time is expensive. And back in those days, it was pretty you know, it was important. So let's get, let's get somebody to do all the programming. This is the sound we want. Boom, 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 boom. Because if, if I get hold of a synth I don't know, I'll be there for days. Right. Yeah, and you can't afford that. Yeah, it's you're right. It is an absolute waste when you're paying several hundred or even a thousand dollars an hour for recording. Yeah. You're not going to sit there. Well, let me give me an hour. Let me program yeah. this thing. <laughs> you know, no, you're not going to do that. Well, no. Phil, I I can't thank you enough for rearranging your schedule to take some time and talk with me. It is a, a great pleasure of mine to finally meet you, and and I, I I can't tell you enough how much I enjoy and appreciate your work. Well, don't forget you've got to go to work, work shortly, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's literally four feet away from where I am. So the commute is not too four bad. <laughs> well, thank you very much, my friend. I look forward to talking with you again in the future. I'm very anxious to hear the new album, hear your new solo album, the, get the book. Uh, there's so much you have going on to enjoy. Everybody check out those links in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Phil. No problem. We'll talk again, my friend. Bye for now. Bye-bye.